This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. This is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can talk about the Casey Anthony murder case. So Casey Anthony was charged with killing her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee Anthony, and this crime allegedly took place in 2008. So I'll be kind of taking a look at a lot of different factors in this case, including potential mental health and personality factors. But just to be clear, I'm not diagnosing Casey Anthony or anyone else involved in this case. So I'll give kind of a quick summary, then take a look at the state's case against Casey Anthony, the defense, the outcome, and then again take a look at the mental health and personality side. Another question I'll try to answer here is, many people have asked what my opinion is, did she commit the murder or not, and I'll talk about my opinion toward the end of this video on that topic. So Casey Anthony in 2008 was 18 years old, and Kaylee Anthony, her daughter, was two years old, and they lived with Casey's parents, Cindy and George Anthony. So from an outside observer's point of view, this case started on July 15, 2008, when Cindy Anthony called the police and reported that her granddaughter was missing for 31 days. She also reported a dead body smell in Casey Anthony's car. Later on, she kind of backed away from that statement she said that it smelled like someone died and that was a figure of speech. But again, that's not what she told the police on July 15th. Now, Casey Anthony was interviewed by police about Kaylee's disappearance. And she said that the nanny kidnapped Kaylee. Of course, this turned out not to be true. And she said she was too frightened to call the police. None of this was true. She actually lied to the police several times. So the next day, charges of making a false statement to law enforcement were filed against her as well as child neglect and obstructing an investigation. Later on, she would be charged with first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, and aggravated manslaughter of a child. And this was in October of 2015. There were some other kind of events that occurred in between these two dates, some check fraud that was unrelated to this case, and some other things. But in terms of like the major points, she was charged the day after the phone call that Cindy made to the police, and again in October. In December, in a wooded area near their house, Kaylee's body was discovered. So going into the trial, which started in 2011, there were really two theories of the crime that kind of emerged. So on the state side, their theory was that Casey bought chloroform, used it on Kaylee, and then suffocated her. And on the defense side, they said that it was an accidental drowning. The trial took place from May to June 2011. So now taking a little bit more of a detailed look at the state's case, what do we see kind of unfold in the trial? Well, really their case was fairly straightforward. They brought in witnesses that said that there was evidence of a decomposing body in Casey Anthony's car and some hair that may have belonged to Kaylee, but they couldn't really establish that for sure. They looked at the skeletal remains of Kaylee and said it looked like murder. They pointed out the lying and suspicious behavior of Casey Anthony. Casey Anthony involved herself in a lot of behavior that seemed very suspicious given the circumstances, like partying and going out with boyfriends 
and having sexual relations with them and getting a tattoo and just didn't seem at all interested or even really aware that Kaylee was missing. So all this was used by the state in their case. They also used some evidence that they thought they had at the time, which was a search for chloroform online that was allegedly performed by Casey Anthony and allegedly occurred 84 times. She searched the term chloroform 84 times. As it turns out, it was a software error and the search was only made one time. So they kind of lost a lot of steam, I think, on that point. They're really pushing the chloroform angle and that piece really kind of fell apart. The medical examiner reported that the death was by undetermined means, which the state used, but that really wasn't a strong point for them. And they had some evidence that a blanket that was at the scene where Kaylee's body was buried matched bedding at Casey Anthony's house. In terms of motive, which of course is very important to convince the jury that somebody committed a crime, the motive that they came up with was that Kaylee interfered with the partying lifestyle of Casey Anthony and that Casey Anthony couldn't spend enough time with her boyfriend because of Kaylee. Moving over to the defense, we see that they brought up this idea that George Anthony sexually abused Casey Anthony and engaged in other bad behavior, but interestingly, there was no real evidence of this. And this is still one of the components of this case that's still debated. Should the defense have been allowed to bring that particular argument? Because really, almost nothing supported that argument. So they got that in. It wasn't taken out of the trial. The jury did get to hear that. They also brought up a defense that there was no DNA in the car. And under the theory of the crime, maybe there should have been which I think was a good point for the defense. They also had a forensic pathologist come in and reject the prosecution's claim that duct tape was used to kill Kaylee. And this is part of the state's case, that duct tape was used as part of the suffocation mechanism. So this hurt the state's case. The forensic pathologist indicated that the tape was probably placed on Kaylee's mouth and nose after the body was already decomposing. They also brought up a point that there was no way to know who searched for the chloroform. And then later on, we see that Cindy Anthony actually takes responsibility for that and says she was looking up the term chlorophyll and then looked up chloroform because she thought they might be connected. So she was apparently concerned about chlorophyll because of pets eating vegetation in the backyard. So that kind of took apart the chloroform case even more. So the state already lost traction with the software error, and then they kind of lost the rest of it with Cindy Anthony's testimony. We also see evidence the defense brought up that Casey Anthony was actually a good mother and had no motive to commit the crime. So as we see as we move to the end of the case, the defense theory of the case was that Kaylee died in an accidental drowning that was covered up by George Anthony, the grandfather. So they weren't necessarily saying he was involved in a criminal act at that level, but it was accidental. The sexual abuse, of course, they were alleging a criminal act. The prosecution rested on June 15th. Fifteen days later, the defense rested, and between the prosecution and the defense, there were over a hundred witnesses, but Casey Anthony was not among the witnesses. She did not testify in this case. So as the case went to the jury, I think that most people in this case were expecting a guilty verdict with some sort of homicide involved not necessarily first-degree murder, 
but one of the homicide-related charges. And it turns out that the jury found that Casey Anthony was not guilty of any of the homicide or homicide-related charges in this case, but rather just providing false information to a law enforcement officer. So she was convicted of four counts of lying to law enforcement and sentenced to one year per count. But when you take into account how long she'd already been in jail and the good behavior time she'd earned, she was released shortly after the verdict. So in what turned out to be a very surprising verdict, she was found not guilty of murder. Later on as well, two of the four convictions with lying to law enforcement were overturned as well. So really, she was only convicted of two counts of lying to law enforcement when everything was done and over with. So that's a summary of the case and what happened here. I want to go through some of the opinions that different people had in this case as we move to kind of talking about whether she really committed this crime or not. I think this is interesting, the different perspectives. So the judge in the case actually believed that the state did prove its case, and he was pretty sure that Casey Anthony was going to be found guilty of some form of homicide and was surprised when, of course, she wasn't. We see the medical examiner believed that the jury really rejected scientific evidence. She believed it was clear that the body was hidden because it had been put in two plastic bags, then put in a canvas bag, and then thrown behind a rotting log. So she argued that there was no proof of an accidental death, and she felt like the jury didn't really get that right. If we look at one of the detectives that talked to Casey Anthony, he thought that she was really kind of nonchalant, and most people in that situation would have been frantic about missing a child, and Casey Anthony just wanted to talk about how she had aspirations of being a personal trainer. So he found her behavior to be really inconsistent with what was going on. Now, I'm always kind of skeptical at law enforcement when they make statements like this because it seems like this is what they find a lot of the time. Like, you rarely hear about a detective interviewing somebody and them saying, well, yes, they acted completely normally in terms of their behavior. They're always suspicious of people. It's kind of how they're trained. And they point out what they believe are discrepancies between what's going on and behavior, even though they have no mental health training. So this one, I mean, it's interesting what he thought, but in terms of its value as evidence, I don't weight it very heavily. Now, the defense attorney, Casey Anthony's defense attorney, of course, believes that she is not guilty and that she was really actually a very loving mother. And what happened was that because her daughter went missing, she kind of shut down and then just fabricated a story. So he's one of the few people that believe Casey Anthony's version of events and believe that sexual abuse and other factors kind of led to Casey Anthony not being capable of handling the information about her daughter being missing and then led to all these problems like lying to the police. So that's just some of the reactions from people involved. What about the jurors, though? Because these are really the crucial people. When the case was turned over to them, they had the power to decide what happened to Casey Anthony. And it's interesting because the jurors in interviews after the trial indicated that the state just didn't produce the evidence. They didn't produce evidence of how, when, or where Kaylee died. And this was important to the state's case because they had a specific theory of the crime. So what the jury was really saying is the state failed. Now, it's interesting because they also found George Anthony to be suspicious. They didn't like him as a witness. 
And of course, this kind of played into the defense theory of the crime. Now, a number of people have blamed the jurors in this case, but if you look at the evidence, they did appear to really agonize over this decision, and they were looking for evidence here and evaluating it carefully. In a sense, it seems like they did believe that Casey Anthony did it. They just didn't believe the state proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. So in a sense, one could say instead of blaming the jurors, credit the defense and perhaps blame the prosecution for not bringing a stronger case. Of course, with this acquittal, jeopardy is attached, so Casey Anthony cannot be tried again for these murders. Because of the double jeopardy provision, she can't be tried again for the same crime. So with that acquittal, the case is over and can never be brought back. So we have some points of view from the judge, the medical examiner, the defense attorney, a detective, as well as the jurors. What I find interesting in this case is the point of view of two of the mental health professionals. I believe they're both psychologists who were hired to assess Casey Anthony. And all their notes from their depositions are available online. One was 149 pages and the other was 298 pages. So it took a while to read. So as I go through kind of what they found, it's important to remember this is a summary. There's really just too much to cover in a video like this, but I'll try to summarize it efficiently. So we see that one of the mental health clinicians here gave Casey Anthony an MMPI, and the result was normal. So what's this mean? So the MMPI is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And actually, it is considered the gold standard for personality assessment, especially when you're talking about pathological personality traits. It's used to screen law enforcement and other people who would be in sensitive positions. And even though it's not perfect, and this is talked about in the deposition, it is a fairly reliable and valid instrument. So for the behavior that we saw from Casey Anthony, you know, in terms of the way she behaved during the time when her daughter was missing, and then moving over to what we see with the MMPI, it really doesn't make any sense. It makes you think that one of the accounts has to be wrong, but her behavior during the time when her daughter was missing is fairly well established. Then again, on the other side, the MMPI is reliable and valid. So 
it's tough. Maybe the administration was not scored correctly. Maybe something changed. Maybe she was coached and had to answer. I don't know. It could just be random error. But to me, that seems to be one of the most unusual elements of this case, that somebody could do what she did. Now, again, she was acquitted of the murder, so we don't know if she did that. But she definitely had this odd behavior while her daughter was missing. And again, that just seems completely inconsistent with a normal result on the MPI. It just really makes no sense. Another thing that's interesting about that first deposition is the clinician said that even if he believed what Casey Anthony said, so he just took her at her word, there would still be no mental disorders present. So even if we look at the MMPI and we say, okay, it was scored incorrectly, or she answered in a way to get around the response distortion items that were built in, somehow beat the test, even if you just go by what she said, there were no mental disorders evident. And if you look at the deposition, it's pretty clear that this first clinician has a moderate to high level of skill. He seemed pragmatic and logical. Moving to the next clinician, this is the 298-page deposition. We see this clinician's a little bit different in his style. He has a psychodynamic approach to this case, which isn't unusual based on when he earned his PhD. It was 1963. So the psychodynamic school of thought was very popular then. He seemed to rely more on defense mechanisms, like Freudian defense mechanisms, like denial and suppression to explain why Casey Anthony behaved in such an unusual way when her daughter was missing. So in a way, with this deposition, her behavior seemed almost expected. And I think when you look at that deposition, again, you see kind of a moderate to high level of skill, but somebody who's very attached to the psychodynamic theory. So I felt like that was a little less convincing than the first deposition. But either way, you have two fairly well-trained mental health clinicians that appear to be competent, saying that there's no evidence of a mental disorder and nothing going on really with mental health except for perhaps some V-codes, which are areas that can be the focus of treatment, but they're not psychopathology. So for example, a V-code might be if somebody was abused when they were a child. That would be a V-code in the DSM, but not a mental disorder. So two clinicians again, seeming to agree that there was nothing unusual about Casey Anthony. In addition to finding no evidence of mental disorder, they also said there was no psychopathy at work, no sociopathy at work, and only a normal level of narcissism for her age, which seems extremely surprising, given her really immature and self-centered behavior. So, again, I think this is one of the more interesting elements of this case. Rarely do we have the evidence directly from the mental health clinicians who examine somebody in a situation like this. And here we do, and it seems highly contradictory with the behavior that we observed before. So the last question I'll answer here is, do I think she committed the murder? And this is really a tough one to answer. I will try to give my best answer to this. The short answer, of course, is I don't know. Legally, of course, she was found not guilty. As I mentioned, Jeopardy's attached, so there will never be another trial. But I found some, I think, interesting things, some interesting observations in her behavior in a recent interview and some other things that she did that may not mean anything, but I think in a case like this where we just don't have a lot of evidence, there's no video recording of her committing a murder or anything like that, we are left to kind of look at these small details and interpret them, which of course can be a little hazardous because that's not really scientific, but 
I found some interesting things in her behavior. If you look at a recent interview she did, she said that she really sees a lot of parallels between her case and the O.J. Simpson case. I find this to be pretty interesting because I think most people would say that O.J. Simpson was guilty even though he was found not guilty. So it's kind of an unusual case to think of as a parallel. If somebody was really not guilty, if they really didn't do it, they wouldn't look at the O.J. Simpson case and say, oh, you know, that case is similar, right? Um, something else we see is that she was talking about a case that she was working on because apparently she lives with and works with the lead investigator for her defense team. So she helps him, I guess, do some research on cases or something. And she was talking about an individual who's accused of like DUI manslaughter and how she looked at him and thought that this is a kid that almost lost his life for something that the state couldn't definitively prove that he did. I found this to be a very interesting way of looking at that circumstance. Again, if somebody's really not guilty, if somebody were falsely accused of murder, would they run out into the street or wherever they were allowed to run? Would they run out in, you know, in front of a microphone and say that the state can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I did it? Is that really what somebody who's not guilty says? Or did they say, I didn't do it? Did they say, this is a travesty of justice, a miscarriage of justice, this is unfair, this is a system working against me? Instead, you know, she seemed to take a different angle, which is, you know, the state couldn't technically prove their case against her. And that's what she's, I think, seeing in these other cases. So I find that pretty interesting. In that same interview, she says that she's lived that experience firsthand, and she didn't do what she was accused of doing. Again, that just seems like an unusual statement given the severity of the charges. She was charged with murder. She was facing potentially the death penalty. And her daughter was dead. And in all this, she's kind of thinking, I didn't do what I was accused of. Just seems like kind of a weak statement given the severity of the charges. In particular, if you think about it from the point of view, if they weren't true, if she was falsely accused, again, her response just doesn't seem to match. We have to be a little bit careful with this, of course, because some people's emotional responses don't match the situation, and that could explain a lot in this case. If she just has unusual reactions to stressful events, that could explain what I'm talking about here after the fact, as well as what happened before the police were called. So we have to be careful again when kind of interpreting some of these different bits of information. But either way, if I'm to kind of give my opinion on whether she did it or not. We have kind of three categories that I think emerge here. One is kind of the worst case. She did it and it was premeditated. The next is like second degree murder or manslaughter. So maybe she was being reckless or negligent and that caused the death of Kaylee. And then of course the third possibility was that she was telling the truth and it was an accidental drowning and that she worked in a conspiracy with her father to cover it up. So under any theory, she did something really wrong, but of course the most wrong would be that first-degree murder. If I had to guess, I would say that she probably did commit first-degree murder. Again, I don't know. It's just a guess. Everybody has a theory on this. And if I were just to guess, I would say that she probably did commit premeditated murder. And my next guess would be some other type of murder that was not premeditated. 
again, murder two or manslaughter. The accidental drowning story and the cover-up, they just don't really ring true to me. I think that's a hard sell. It's possible, I suppose. A lot of things are possible. But again, if I had to guess, I would say it was, in fact, homicide and that she did it. And I understand why the jury said the state did not prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. But in terms of just preponderance of the evidence, which of course is not the standard for a criminal case, but just in terms of a preponderance of the evidence, I do think that she was guilty. So I know a lot of people have that same opinion, if not really even more definitive. A lot of people are very convinced she did it. Where is the room for doubt here? Well, her history seems inconsistent with somebody who murders. That doesn't mean she didn't do it, but she had a fairly good history in school. She was a good student, and she was never in trouble as a kid. So that doesn't quite fit in with somebody who commits first-degree murder. Another thing that kind of I think is frustrating about this case in terms of the evidence and leaves, I think, a little bit of room for doubt is the possible role of Cindy and George Anthony. Were they involved? I don't know. I don't think they were. But there's, I think, one real key thing that's a little hard to believe. And that is, why wouldn't you call the police if your granddaughter was missing for 31 days? The granddaughter lived with them. Casey and Kaylee live with them. So 31 days go by, and that's when you think to call the police? That just seems a little bit odd to me, but maybe it wasn't unusual for Casey to take Kaylee on trips for a while. I don't know. Maybe this was something that was considered normal, or maybe Cindy and George were very busy and just wouldn't notice. But there's a little room for doubt there, right? Not much, but that part of the case just never really made a lot of sense to me in terms of like what behaviors people usually engage in. So this case is really frustrating because we never really found good answers. There's a lot of theories, and some of these theories really involve contradictory evidence, and it's kind of confusing, but that's kind of my take on the case. I'm certainly open for a lot of different opinions here. I know whenever I talk about cases like the Casey Anthony murder of Kaylee, there are going to be people that agree and disagree with me and have other opinions. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.